0: But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sink for joy before the Lord, for he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Luke 19, 37 to 42. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the word of God.
1: Would you pray with me? Lord, we're going to be talking about uh, adoring you today, and we confess that this is uh, in many ways the most difficult form of prayer because it's not about us at all and we are chronically into ourselves so would you be our teacher would you stir up our praise muscles would you help us to see something of how worthy you are of of our simple straightforward declarations of your glory We need your help, by your spirit be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I alluded to in the prayer, we've been talking all month about prayer, about different forms of prayer. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about supplication, asking God for stuff. Last week, we talked about confession, where we come clean about the stuff in us that's not yet what it should be. And today we're gonna talk about adoration, which is very simply telling God who he is. It's not thanking him for anything. It's not asking him for anything. It's not confessing anything. It's just telling him. Telling him about himself. I remember when my friend Chip died a number of years ago. My wife Jeannie and I had known him for 30 years. He and I had been colleagues in ministry He died young of cancer, leaving his wife and four children behind. Because of our long and strong ties with Chip and Becky, his wife, Jeannie and I drove with some friends to Asheville, North Carolina, to be at his funeral. The church was packed, it was a sober setting, it was full of weeping and hugging as people uh, uh, grabbed onto one another gently and uh, with sad faces. But when we were invited to rise and worship God in song, and there was a great deal of singing in this funeral, we did so with such deep gusto that the building seemed to shake and heaven seemed to break in upon us. Now there's a strange irony in this, it seems to be, perhaps to you as well. Here we were facing a great evil, and there was nothing good about what had happened. A life cut short, a family left behind, and yet, We were asked not to complain about it, but we were asked to adore God. And when we did, the deep places in us said, in fact, cried out, yes, this is right. This is what we need to do. This is what we were made to do. There is something essentially human about what we are doing here as we rise to praise. Why? Why even in grief, Is adoration somehow so right? Why the repeated calls in Psalm 96, despite the wide range of Israel's experience, including horrible loss and terrible suffering and sorrow, why the repeated call, at least twelve, almost 12 different uh, verbs of of, of command in this, to uh, sing praise, to give adoration to God. Verses 1 and 2, sing! And then it says it again, sing. And then it says it a third time, sing. And then it says, bless. And then it says, tell. That's all in the first two verses. And then verse 3, declare. And then in verse 7 and 8, ascribe glory to the Lord. And that said not once, not twice, but three times. Ascribe glory to the Lord. And then verse 9, worship the Lord. Tremble before him, dance before him. Tremble can also be translated dance. Why? Well, I want to suggest three answers to this question of why adoring God is so right. Number one, we adore God because it is inevitable. It's bound to happen. Number two, and we're gonna get with the program, you see. Number two, because it changes us. That's our theme for the month, how praying actually changes us. And then thirdly, because he is wonderful and deserves it. So let's look at those three things. Number one, we adore God because it is inevitable. When the Pharisees tell Jesus to stop the mob from adoring God as he comes down off the Mount of Olives on his way as the great King and the great Messiah on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus replies, I tell you, that's a a solemn formula kind of statement. In the King James, it's verily, verily, I say unto you. So listen to this, I tell you, listen to this. If these are silent, if this mob of my followers are silent, is silent, the very stones will cry out. Luke chapter 19, verse 40. Jesus says, in effect, no, there is no stopping this adoration. If you or I try to stop this crowd, then the Spirit of God will raise up another crowd. So committed is God to the overthrow of unbelief. So committed is God to the overthrow of despair and defiance and cynicism that he will make the stones themselves cry out if he must. There is no stopping this, says Jesus to the Pharisees, because there is no stopping him in his agenda to see to it. That adoration arises from the whole earth uh, towards his name. And Jesus' words here echo the resounding conclusion of Psalm 96. And I want you to try to hear his own voice because, you know, Peter tells us that the spirit of Christ inspired the scriptures, the prophets, including the psalms. So we can actually listen for and hear the voice of Jesus himself in the Psalms. And I'm going to do that for you. Listen to verses 11 to 13. Jesus speaking. He says, Let the heavens be glad up there. Let the earth down here rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it, including the stones. Then shall all the trees of the field sing for joy before me. For I come, for I come to judge, to rule the earth. I will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in my faithfulness. One day, Jesus is telling us here, one day heaven and earth and the seas and absolutely everything in them Angelic beings, planets, clouds, stars, distant galaxies only just now discovered thanks to the Webb telescope, sea urchins and blue whales, trees, people everywhere, and yes, the rocks themselves will rise up in cacophonous celebration of the lovely rule of God and of his Messiah. For, for you and me not to practice vigorous, steady, regular adoration of God and of his son. For us not to dance before him, verse nine, not to revel in the beauty and the goodness of the person who rules all things well with equity, fairness, and with righteousness, and the full revealing of whose rule is just around the corner, is simply to forestall the inevitable. It's simply to resist the inevitable. It is to find ourselves outside of the plan of the ages. It's to find ourselves at odds with the Spirit of God who dwells among us and who lives within us, raising praises to God, who loves to make the Redeemer known. More than anything else, He loves to make the Redeemer known. He loves to make the Father known. He He loves to stir up Abba in our hearts so that we worship God with our whole being. He loves it when we love the Redeemer. To resist this activity is to be very much like Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Do you remember that classic Disney film, film Fantasia? Maybe you don't, it's really old, but I am really old and I was a kid when it came out. It's like trying to stop Mickey Mouse in Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, it's trying to get him to stop the water carrying brooms with a hatchet. The more he hacks them into pieces, the more water carriers arise out of the debris until the whole place is flooded with water and, and poor Mickey is about to drown. We rose in deep song at Chip's funeral because Christ was in us singing by his spirit, was in us by his spirit, singing of what is to be and has already begun. Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew twelve thirty four and so we spoke in song out of the abundance of the new hearts that the Spirit had placed within us. We did the inevitable thing, the thing that is coming and the thing that has already begun. So that's the first reason we adore God. It's because we're getting with the program. It's because it's what we were built to do. It's because what the Spirit of Christ in us is committed to doing, it's what's going on already. And will most certainly come to full expression. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We adore God because it changes us for the better. And we really do want to change. I mean, if, if you're a Christian believer, and I'm not assuming everyone in here is, is yet a believer. I, I hope you all become believers if you're not all believers yet. Uh, but, but if you are a believer, you really want to change. Yeah, you fight it and you buck it. Of course you do, I do, we all do. But deep down inside, we really want to change. Why? The Spirit of Christ is in us. He wants to change. We want to change. How can it not be? For sure, uh, we want to change. Well, to adore God, is to join him in the process of the transformation of our lives and our hearts. James tells us in chapter 3, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect person, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at the ships, also another illustration. Though they're so large and are driven by very strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. What is James saying here? Our words, he's saying that our words not only reveal our hearts, as Jesus said they do, but that our words also steer our hearts. They get hold of our hearts and they move our hearts. They transform our hearts. Our words are like God's words. We're made in his image after all. They create, your words and my words, create and destroy worlds, including our own inner worlds our own attitudinal worlds, our own plausibility worlds, our our own worlds of understanding and living and carrying things out. When we sang our hope at Chip's funeral, when we sang the words of hope, the hope that lies in the word of God and his promise towards Chip and his family and us, when we sang our hope at Chip's funeral, what happened to our experience of hope it went up. It increased. Our feelings followed upon our words. The Holy Spirit used our singing to write the truth contained in the words that we were singing upon our inner selves. My wife Jeannie and I had a very close friend, she's now left us, for whom we prayed for many years. She counted herself for a long time, an unbeliever. And in the course of our years with her, she heard me preach a number of times. And after the last of these, she turned to my wife, Jeannie, and she said, Jeannie, he nearly got me that time. Uh, He cleared up a lot of my questions. I think I want to believe, but I just can't. I want to, but I just can't. Hearing this from our friend raised a question for us. Her questions about the faith were largely answered. She said as much. She had come close to mental assent, but she still needed to cross over into conviction. We wondered what we should do under those particular circumstances. Perhaps we thought the best approach was to honor God aloud in her presence with our prayers and our conversation, inviting her, by our words, into her own engagement with those very words. And so we did this, looking for conviction to grow, grow, and we have, in retrospect, cause to believe that she died believing. And we will see her again. Now let's think about applying that story to you and to me. We all have problems believing. We don't all believe perfectly, even if we've been, I've been a Christian for about 900 years, and I still have trouble believing, trusting God about things, believing what he has to say. We all have problems believing for numerous reasons. Now, some of the reasons for difficulty believing are intellectual reasons, and we don't wanna run away from those, we don't wanna deny them, we we don't wanna say to them, oh, just shut up and trust God. No, I would never say that to somebody who has an intellectual question. We need to answer those questions, we need to think those questions through. But other problems with belief arise from other sources, not intellectual ones. More often than not, from the things we have chosen habitually to say, to commit our souls to through words. That is, we have chosen repeatedly to speak words of cynicism, or we've chosen repeatedly to speak words of unbelief, rather than words of praise and adoration and trust. And these words, as James says in James 3, have actually steered us. They've steered us in a certain direction. They have undermined or partially undermined our capacity to believe. Think about what i just said. If you and I say, our words are powerful. Don't, don't miss this one I'm trying to tell you. Our words, your words, are extremely powerful. They're God-like. They're a gift from God. If we say enough times that God isn't real, if we say enough times that God doesn't care about us, if we say enough times that he cannot be trusted, if we say enough times that he is powerless to help, those statements will become increasingly plausible to us despite any up evidence we encounter the contrary. If we choose not as a matter of habit to sing praises through the week, why do we so often worship God only on Sundays? We're supposed to tell of his glory from day to day or if we choose not to enter into praise in public worship, ignoring the hymns and songs, or treating them as window dressing or something bothersome somehow to get through while we wait for the real stuff, which is the sermon, theoretically, our joy and faith will atrophy. Our faith will atrophy. And along with our atrophying faith, our joy will atrophy. Now, I want you to see that what I just described is not, strictly speaking, a rational process. It is a volitional process. It has to do with choosing. It has to do with um, inward change brought upon us, not by thought, but by choice and by practice. Agrican pastor Tish Harrison Warren wisely writes these words, She writes, we think of prayer as mostly self-expressive. In this way of thinking, we begin with beliefs and feelings about God and the world, and because of these, we learn to pray. Our prayers put words to our inner life. But, she says, "Um, prayer actually shapes our inner life. It doesn't give expression to our, it does, but it does more than that. It actually shapes our inner life. She writes, and if we pray the prayers that we have been given to pray, the good prayers, the scripture-based prayers, like Psalm 96, regardless of how we feel about them or about God at the time, we sometimes find to our surprise that they teach us how to believe. What we say isn't neutral with respect to our development, with respect to our growth in faith. It's not neutral at all. So, what I'm trying to say is this, we may need to repent of something, to actually repent, to change our practice. We need to repent of filling our mouths with, and our texts with cynical and unbelieving language, words. To put the matter more positively, we may need to remember and to act upon Proverbs four, 15, 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. What a wonderful statement. Where's the tree of life? It's in the Garden of Eden. It's in the good, on, unfallen world. Healthy words actually steer us back toward Eden. They steer us back towards the place where life is to be found. We may need to take to heart the repeated urgings of Psalm 96, sing, and then sing, and then sing, and so on and so forth. We may need to surrender our habits of speech to the lovely, to the fair and equitable, verse 10, to the righteous and faithful, verse 13, rule of Jesus Christ, the coming King, by choosing to make praise a routine part of how we approach him. What's the, what are the routines for, for your prayer life? You go to him asking for stuff, of course, that's fine. You go to him confessing stuff, of course, that's fine. You go to him lamenting stuff, of course, that's fine. But you gotta go to him with praise. You gotta go to him with adoration. You gotta go telling him how beautiful and lovely he and his father are. How glorious the blessed Trinity is. You gotta go there that way too. Do this, do this as a regular, steady, daily part of how you pray. And I suspect that conviction and joy will rise. Adoration will usher us into reality, capital R, and it will usher us away from the fantasy worlds that our minds and hearts tend to inhabit And for when we adore God, when we discipline ourselves in the words and sometimes the hard work of adoration, we meet him, we steer our hearts towards him. So adoration will do us good. It'll change us for the better. I'm not talking about a rule here. I'm not talking about doing something to get God to love you. No, no, that's already a done deal. He already loves you. This is nothing about working your way to heaven. It has to do with living the reality of where you have been brought already. You have been brought by grace to heaven. You are in the presence of God. You're not earning a thing. You're just telling him in his loving and beautiful company what he's like. And you're celebrating him and his son. So that's the second thing. Uh, Adoration will change you for the better and change me for the better. Okay, here's the third thing. We adore God because he deserves it. <laughs> we, we, we adore God because he's wonderful, because he's beautiful. Look at all the beauty language. I don't have time to point to all the beauty language in Psalm 96 is full of it. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. Uh, there's loveliness in this God and there's lovely moral uh, reality in him as well. I was struck by the eulogy that was given at my friend Chip's funeral, coming back to what I started with. Chip's former pastor who had known and loved Chip well for over 10 years, uh, shocked us by saying this. He said, I'm not going to eulogize Chip. He would not want me to. He knew himself too well, despite the fact that he was a respected physician and a missionary who loved his family deeply. And this pastor went on to say this, Chip struggled his whole life, as you and I do with sin, right up to the end. So I will not eulogize Chip. I will, however, eulogize another man. Chip's dearest friend, who lived so that Chip might have a righteousness that he could not create for himself, and who died so that Chip might live forgiven and cleansed of all his failures, who carried Chip through every painful moment of his final days, and who has has now brought Chip safely home to be with him Chip was not a good man, but now, thanks to Jesus, he is. We were weeping by the time we got through hearing that. I hope it stirs you as well. This is why we adore God. We adore him because he deserves it. We adore him because he loves us. He loves us beyond measure. He loves us so extravagantly that He became our Redeemer, that He came into our world as one of us in order to rescue us from the mess that we have made of ourselves and of it. He came to bring us home by bearing our sins away, taking them off our shoulders, putting them on His shoulders, carrying them into outer darkness where He perished for them. And He came now, has come now, to live inside of us, to overcome our... remaining sin teaching us to revel in his goodness as he does that. So let me summarize what I've been trying to say. Adoration is a means of grace. It changes you and me to celebrate God our maker and our redeemer because it ushers us into his lovely presence. It ushers us into his loving presence and when we see him, we get changed. We change. We behold him as he is and it actually changes us. It's called the beatific vision. And it isn't just in the future. It is in the future, but it happens now. As we see him, we change. You don't get changed just by, told, by being told, get better. That's not what changes you. What changes you is by being told, behold him there, the risen lamb, my spotless righteousness. What are we saying? We change by seeing, with the eyes of faith, the love and the beauty of the God who loves us uh, so beautifully. So I have a suggestion. Here's my suggestion, my parting suggestion for you. Try to adore him for five minutes straight sometime today before you forget what I've been talking about, which you will forget. Sermons have a half-life of about 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, you'll remember half of what I said. In another 15, you'll remember a half of that. Or another 30, you'll remember a half of the half. So you gotta get busy right away. (laughs) So take some time today uh, 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 to uh, to pray five minutes straight uh, before you forget. And when I say pray adoration straight, I mean pray adoration. Don't ask for anything. Oh Lord, I adore you, please help me. No, don't say help me. Oh, Lord, I love you so much, I confess that I... No, don't confess. Don't ask for anything. Don't confess anything. Just tell him who he is. Non-stop, full stop. Five minutes. Go for it. Try it. You will find it's hard. You'll find that you will morph away into everything except adoration. But I tell you, if you stick with it and learn to to do it, it will change your life because you'll see him. And then having done it today, do it tomorrow. Yeah, only five minutes. All right, right, five too much, three. I'm bargaining with you. Then do it Tuesday, three, Wednesday. Make it habitual. It has to be habitual. It has to be measured in terms of minutes. It's not just a nice, I'm not saying, I'm talking about let's have nice gooey feelings about God. I'm saying do something. Pray, five minutes, prayers of adoration. Make it a habit, it'll do you good. All right, I'm almost done. Here's the very last thing. There's a bracing and absolutely lovely spiritual that I have always enjoyed. It takes inspiration from our scene in Luke's gospel, the the scene uh, in the reading that was read before from Luke, and perhaps also from Psalm 96. And the first stanza goes like this. I keep so busy praising my Jesus, I keep so busy praising my Jesus, I keep so busy praising my Jesus, I ain't got time to die. (laughs) And then this is how it ends, and I'm gonna sing it for you, bear with me. So get out of my way, let me praise my Jesus. Out of my way, let me praise my Lord. If I don't praise him, the rock's going to cry out, glory and honor, glory and honor. I ain't got time to die. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, give me it. Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. Let's pray. Lord, we, you have made us for yourself. You have made us to behold your beauty and your loveliness. And we're so uh, thankful for that, that you have given us the spirit to teach us how to do that. And so we love you. We love you for your deep commitment to us. We trust you in your deep commitment for us, and we pray for your grace. Fill us with praise. Discipline us in praise. Change us as we praise. Lift us out of fear and depression and confusion as we praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.